Hey listeners, this is an interview with author Serena Higgins about her book, Shall These Bones Breathe? If you want to know more about the book or support her as she writes it, please check out her Buy Me a Coffee page. I'll link to it in the show notes. Thanks. Zabeth flung open the door to the sweet, homey cabin, shuddering. She upended her huge bag on the bed and began chucking clothes in every direction until she found her smaller, heavy-duty daypack backpack. Stuffing into it only what was necessary for a day on the site, water bottles, sunblock, work gloves, more water bottles, peanut butter and pita bread, Nutella and more pita bread, wide-brimmed hat, she slung it on her back, shoved a tiny notebook in her pocket, and slammed the door on her way out. So longed this creepy paradise where ice did not melt and flowers did not fade. Don't you think it's time? She whispered fiercely to herself and the universe as she jogged back up the hill. The scent of junipers whipped past her face. Cypresses and vertical lines blurred against the dry slopes. Rounding the curve, she was racing past where the path overhung a cliff and a bench was placed for visitors to enjoy the vista of cabins built into the sheer drop below. But she tripped on a loose bootlace and fell. Her body hurled towards space, but she caught the bench and clung. The world continued to whirl until she sat down. Terror, adrenaline, and relief washed through her, and she gasped. As she gripped the armrest, panting, her head reeled, which might explain the strange thing she was seeing. She thought she saw a skylight shimmering in the air. It was a silver, glassy box, suspended in nothingness, hanging there far above the kibbutz. She stood up, gripping the arm of the bench and leaned toward the cliff edge, craning her neck to see better down into this strange object. It wasn't an object. There was nothing there. She felt she was looking down into a huge square hole of awful depth, but not a dark hole. It was sort of silvery, like the aura before a migraine when the brain fools the eyes. Was it a trick of the atmosphere or of the palpable white light? It seemed for a moment that the box was made of light or of air, or a square hole cut out of them. Yes, that was it. A cube of light and air had been removed so that she could look down through the shaft where they should be. How could there be a rectangular hole cut out of air and light? Wouldn't it collapse were such a thing possible? What would fill it? It couldn't stay empty. That's not how things work. She eased her grip on the bench, sidled closer to the cliff's edge and looked. There was something at the bottom of it. No, she was seeing down through it, beyond its end, away down below it, seeing the kibbutz in unbearable miniature, and it was full of people. Monstrously tiny people were scurrying here and there, from building to building, carrying things, not carrying things, standing around, bunching up in groups the way humans do. Were her teammates down there in normal time, while she was suspended in stasis far above them? It looked thousands of feet below her, telescopically small. No, of course not. Nonsense. There was no silvery, visionary box of negation in the air, no tiny teammates scuttling about in a microcosmic copy of the very place she could see from where she stood. Zabeth turned her back and ran. All right, and that is part of the short story Dig from Shall These Bones Breathe, read by its author, Serena Higgins. I was pointing out last time that the Christian life is simply a process of having your natural self changed into a Christ self.
Welcome to the Inklings Variety Hour, where fans and scholars of C.S. Lewis, J.R.R. Tolkien, Charles Williams, Owen Barfield, and others discuss their works and lives. Increasingly, though, especially this season, we've been interviewing authors who have been influenced by the Inklings in some way about their own passion projects. I see this as entirely in step with the spirit of the Inklings, which was primarily a scholarly and creative writing group rather than a literary movement. I'm Chris Pipkin, silvery connoisseur of Nutella and pita bread and time travel. And I'm again outclassed, joined by one of the world's foremost Charles Williams experts and Inkling scholars, Serena Higgins, who's here to talk about her new book, Shall These Bones Breathe? Shall These Bones Breathe is a short story collection that spans genres of sci-fi, fantasy, and myth, engaging with topics such as bioengineering, art imitating life, and genetic determinism. Serena herself is an expert in magical modernist theater. She's edited an academic essay collection entitled The Inklings and King Arthur. She's also the author of the blog The Oddest Inkling, devoted to Charles Williams's works. As a creative writer, Serena has published two books of poetry, Caduceus and The Significance of Swans. And as we will talk about today, she's revising a collection of short stories you can currently subscribe to get updated versions of the story and help shape her fiction. Serena, how are you doing? It's great to have you back on. Oh, I'm so glad to be here. When I talked to you about the short story collection previously, you called it a handful of hazelnuts. It's now called Shall These Bones Breathe? Both titles are allusions to mystical writers, a handful of hazelnuts being Julian of Norwich, uh, Shall These Bones Breathe? The the question that God asks Ezekiel, I, I think, in, in, in Ezekiel about a, a valley of dry bones. I love Julian of Norwich, but I, I like Shall These Bones Breathe a little bit better than a handful of hazelnuts. Why'd you change the name? Wow, you are the ideal reader, man. You're getting all the illusions. You're sort of reading my thought process as I went through it. I knew A Handful of Hazelnuts was a placeholder title. And the only through line I could see at the book at that time was epiphanies in unexpected situations, unlooked for revelations. So mm. obviously my mind went to Julian. Of course. <laughs> but the tone, the connotations and the imagery of Handful of Hazelnuts wasn't quite right. It's a little too earthy for this particular collection, which is weird because I'm totally an earthy person and writer, but this particular collection is a bit more technological than that. It's got a bit of futuristic science fiction and a handful of hazelnuts. It almost sounds a little bit like, I don't know, a grandma's tabletop collection of pleasant sayings. Uh -huh, uh -huh. <laughs> so my author's circle early on brainstormed a bunch of different titles and we noticed that another through line in the whole book is embodiment and the mm. absolute importance of the body. And that theme has become much clearer to me as I'm revising these post-COVID. Because mm. I wrote these stories over a decade ago. Yeah. And now I'm just like, the necessity of, of physical reality. Mm -hmm. this, is, this is a fine medium, Christopher. I'm so glad we can be talking. But it's nowhere near as good as if we were sitting in a room breathing the same air. And right. <laughs> really exchanging eye contact instead of being mediated by a webcam. Yeah. So, I mean, there are stories in which there are literal bones like dig, which is about archeology. span And the whole thing sort of seems to be about do these, can these revelations bring about change and renewal and new life. And in some of the stories that got, that goes well. And in some of the stories that goes terribly badly. So, yeah, so that's, it led me to that title. And I love the idea that the title is a question too. Yeah. And some of the stories answer yes, some answer no, and some answer we don't know. 
Yeah. Yeah. No, I love that. And I love what you're saying about the embodied nature of human beings, right? That, that, that we're not just souls and we're not, you know, full connection is not possible just through screens, which mainly raises to my mind one story in particular but before we get there i'd like to i'd like to hear a little something more about about dig about the piece that you read at the top what's what's the basic premise of dig because and and how was it generated <laughs> i'll answer those questions in reverse order the story came about because i have actually done archaeology in israel on two occasions and have traveled there other times and studied ancient history of Israel and so forth. The premise of the story is that this young archaeologist goes to meet her team at this kibbutz and the kibbutz is totally empty and time seems to be frozen. It's in stasis. And she finds this visionary box in the air, the passage I read at the top. And in a slightly later episode, she ends up diving into it and goes back in time to the period that she was excavating and then the story is a clash between the historical and the mythical, because she did not expect to find the ahistorical details of a Bible story coming to life, and yet she does. So there are things going on that are historically and geographically impossible, but she comes you know, face-to-face -face in an embodied way with this story come to life. So that yeah. is the premise. Yeah, I really, I really love how it's it's kind of introducing and bringing up a question that that's that's fascinating to me, and I think it was fascinating to the Inklings as well. You know, especially like if you read Owen Barfield, if you read Tolkien's Alexander Pope-like poem. Oh, that's praising Pope much too highly. Yeah. Uh, well. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We we can we can table that conversation. Yeah, that's um, but uh, yeah. Uh, but it's but it's in his sort of style of hey, I want to write an essay, but I want to write it in a punchy way that that is yeah. you know digestible, the strong and, rhythm and, and yeah. couplets and everything, you know. Exactly. But uh, but but yeah, this uh, this question of what is real, right? And and is it you know in our analytical late age, we tend to give primacy to like the physical details that can be measured. Right, as that that ultimately is is the real, and uh, and so you know obviously like on both sides of the kind of Christian, non-Christian divide, right? The atheists are finding things in the past that are like ha ha ha, you see the things reported in the Bible didn't really happen, and then you have this whole cottage industry of of Christians who also accept this premise of like, you know, the the real is the physical measurable stuff. Right, saying saying, oh, but but look, we found the ark on Mount Ararat. It's just somehow we can't get to it, or or whatever else, right? So, so yeah, it's it's just interesting that that it brings up this question, and obviously, being a story, it, it doesn't resolve it necessarily, but it but it brings this brings up this question of like, well, what what is history? What is reality? You know, and and how would history? You know, have have felt in the past, and and if we time traveled, could we even go back? to that history or to be some other history in our anyway it's it's super fun it's super oh good. yeah thank you uh, and i was kind of hoping to avoid falling into either of those camps if that's not a mixed metaphor and i was hoping that the story would not force it into a sort of political corner that the, the i don't want the conclusion of the story to be people saying oh well what year does she believe the exodus happened or you know does she think the conquest narratives are literal right that's not as interesting to me as 
what does this myth do? How does it transform the character? What does she see at the end that she didn't see before? How is she a different person? Yeah. Those sorts of questions. And yeah. I do not answer in the story whether she time traveled or whether she traveled to an alternate dimension or whether it was imagination or, you know, some kind of trance in which she dreams this story. I don't answer that. And I'm the moment not particularly interested in that. Yeah. Yeah. Because the story right. is true, no matter how much of it is factual. <laughs> right. Right. Yeah. Yeah, it's super, super interesting. So, and and in general, like I think, you know, I think, I think you say elsewhere that one of the things that you're trying to do is use use some, you know, sci-fi tropes that are that are well established. You know, a lot of them, right? Whether whether time travel or, or something else, but to explore philosophical questions from kind of a different angle. A lot of time, and and, and also, like I, I would say, not just philosophical questions. But one of the things that you bring to it is is a real humanness in your characters, right? So it's, it's not just an intellectual exercise; it's an emotional exercise as well, which which is super valuable and and, and enjoyable to to connect with these people over, you know, these these fictional people over over fiction. You you talked as well about about embodiment, and that immediately made me think of one of the other stories in your collection, Memory Chips, mm -hmm. uh, which is fascinating and hints at like a potential future where embodiment could become less and less of an important thing to a lot of people, which isn't necessarily good. Could you talk a bit about the premise of that? Yes. The premise of it is exactly right. It's set in a near future. And I actually did work out the timeline and read websites that are future predicting sites and so forth, read up some futurologists and oh, cool. made a future timeline. So the main premise is that people have memory chips implanted in their brains, that they've had their biological memories downloaded and wiped from their cerebral cortex and uploaded onto these chips. So their memories are stored digitally in nanotechnology instead of organically in their own brain matter. But that's really that's really just the, the science fiction mechanism to get me to what I want. I'm not as interested in that mechanism as I am, as you say, in the human interactions, because then the actual plot of the story is that our narrator's grandmother has developed Alzheimer's because the grandmother has refused to be chipped. <sighs> so I'm actually exploring the horrors of what that disease and other forms of dementia do to families, and then sort of raising a question of whether art, creative works, in particular poetry, can somehow transcend both medical decline and technological interventions. So in a way, the human story is also almost a premise to explore that question. But the, the story is based on three real life people I love who have had Alzheimer's or various forms of dementia, one very particular incident with a person. And another was based on a former English professor of mine that when she lost everything else, when she lost all of her physical and mental faculties, she could still recite poetry. Hmm. It was amazing. I mean, she'd be in the back of the church, just babbling and screaming. And it was, it was absolutely heartrending. But if you started off a line of a poem, that she had known, she could continue reciting it. Mm. So there's mm. something I think about the way that poetry gets written on our bodies, that yeah. even when the brain is gone, somehow, I don't know, is it the muscle memory of 
of the voice, but somehow that keeps going. And I've heard some stories that might be similar things, music and dance and so yeah, forth. Absolutely. My, my wife's grandmother was a fairly important scholar, but she loved poetry and she could still, you know, when, even, even when everything else was kind of starting to go in her, in her nineties and it never really completely went, she's very sharp minded until the end of her life, but she always had poetry and she she was like going slightly blind but she'd memorized enough that she could you know kind of kind of quote it but yeah but it was such a it was such a precious thing for you know for for her to have stored up in, in her mind but yeah yeah i love i love that you seize on that aspect of of human experience and make it central to this sort of like you know yeah this this one of one of a number of stories that asks the question of like what happens when we can sort of upgrade ourselves right and when we can become sort of post-human or, or whatever else mm -hmm. but I love that you attach that to 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 the idea of of you know what is what does poetry do right and and in what way is poetry you know maybe even a little more human than some of the memories that kind of fall out of our fall out of our minds yeah. uh, I'll also say that you know reading reading that piece, and reading about increasing artificiality of people's brains and things like that, and 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 even just like experiences and how you can sort of design your own little mini utopia, right? Of your holodeck. Right. Yeah. Yeah. All all of it, you know, of course, strikes me and would probably strike, you know, most readers as sinister. But at the same time, I think you do a great job setting up this question of, but if you loved someone who is losing their mind wouldn't you, wouldn't you do it? make yeah. the same choice that these people did and I, I i honestly don't know what my answer to that would be you know i i think it would probably be yes i would oh yeah right. I, I, um, I would do it yeah i'm very yeah. techno positive myself yeah but these premises, as we've learned from, you know, Blade Runner, Philip K. Dick from Ready Player One, you know, th mm -hmm. these situations always raise ethical questions that run ahead of either the technology or our laws, philosophy and theology. Those are always like running to catch up. So we don't have a theology for dealing with chat GPT right now. Right. We don't have laws and ethics and pedagogical techniques now, I'm very optimistic about the future of human creativity. I saw a composer friend on Facebook who is not. She said, the minute that AI can write a piece of music that the average person can't tell was written by AI, I'm done. I'm not composing mm. anymore. And that made me so sad because I was like, I have so much faith in human creativity. Yeah, we will we will move the creativity to a different locale. So I don't know. Maybe instead of her sitting down and composing the score, maybe she can put four composing AIs on a stage and conduct them, and you know, create a multi-level piece of music in real time using the power of AI. Right. I think it just challenges us to be creative about our creativity. Yes. Yeah. But don't worry, I did not use chat GPT for a single sentence <laughs> in this book, anyone? <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, it's, uh, it's, it is really interesting, the, the moment we find the, our, ourselves in um, right now and sort of examining this, because I think, so for the past, I don't know, 30 years, maybe less, maybe more, I don't know, writers have, have writers and, and people who do brain work of, of all kinds have been encouraged to make it more saleable, 
right? Yeah. And, and and therefore, like in a way more formulaic because that's how the people sort of at the top can figure out if it's saleable or not. <laughs> and it's it's similar with, you know, it's similar with approaches to pedagogy as well, similar with the way that people are often encouraged to teach writing to students as well. And suddenly we get this technology that is better at formula than, than we are far, far better. And so it, to, to an extent, I see, I see a glimmer of hope there because we get to, again, try to innovate in ways that are maybe a little more human than, yeah. And at the same moment, we suddenly have works by, say, Ted Chong or Lutz Sheen's Three Body mm -hmm. Problem selling wildly in the English-speaking world. Yeah. And Lutz Sheen is using totally different approaches to the novel than the traditional Western novel yeah. structure. So it's it's difficult for an American to read this work that has millennia of Chinese literary history behind it. And yeah. yet we're digging it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I started The Three-Body Problem. I still need to finish it. My, my brother's made a lot more headway and he spent some time in China. And yeah. Loves it. I need to, I need to return to it. I look um, forward to reading the, the rest of the trilogy. I love I love Chong's stories though as oh, well, which is which is probably part. Of, you know that your stories are in a similar vein, right? Very Ooh, very you. philosophical and 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 just working with interesting ideas, and also unlike so many, I think sci-fi authors engaged with the past as well, and 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 not afraid to you know. Uh, of of those old stories uh, again similar to to chong one of those is aphrodite has fallen from the sky that's really engaged with the past and engaged with myths i'd say i'd say in a in a different way so is dig right but but aphrodite has fallen from the sky is is definitely set in the past with no time travel really right. involved that i can that i can remember anyway just a but yeah, what's what's the basic what's the basic premise of Aphrodite? Well, do I spoil it or not? Because in the revision, I made it that you don't know which myth it is necessarily right mm -hmm. away. Originally, the yeah. title was the name of the myth. Okay, okay, yeah, don't spoil it. Okay, um, if but, you know uh, the myth, you'll probably figure it out within a paragraph yeah. or two. But see, this is one of two stories in which I can detect the influence of the Inklings myself. The other being incoherence, but. This story, Aphrodite Has Fallen from the Sky, to me is in dialogue with Tilly Have Faces. And I don't say that in any arrogant way. Tilly Have Faces is the greatest novel, period. Yeah. <laughs> um, no, it absolutely reminded me of Tilly Have Faces. Right. It's in dialogue with that, right? Because it's yeah. taking a, a pre-existing myth that a lot of people know, and it's retelling it, not really from, I don't think I did as, I don't think I took as creative approach in who the perspective character is, right? That was... Lewis's main premise until he had faces was that the older sister would tell the story. And he had that idea from at least 1922, very early. Right. He was like, the sister has been wronged. I'm going to retell the story. Uh -huh. <laughs> but instead, I wanted to do what's very popular right now, what a lot of writers are doing, which is take the spare outline that we're given in mythology and flesh it out with novelistic psycho-spiritual details, right? Because we readers of novels now expect to get inside the heads of characters in ways that we don't usually get in Apuleius or Ovid or some of these other sources we go to for the myths. So I took the main character of the story and then projected onto him some of my own spiritual struggles and sufferings. So I found in the shape of the myth 
a place to explore my own doubts and arrogance when it comes to, in his case, the gods, and then the longing for, and then rejection of epiphany, and then the being jaded and embittered. And so I just sort of over-dramatized these things that happened in my own head on a small scale, projected them onto this myth on a sort of a larger scale, I think. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I really, I really do like there are these little, I'm not sure what to call them, but I, I should know. Interludes? Um, yeah. 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 There you go. There you go. They yeah. call them in drafting. There are these, there are these, these interludes where, where you get, I think in the head of the character in it from a different angle, right? It's more like prudentious psychomachia, psychomachia than, you know, where, where you have these gods kind of quarreling with each other, but they represent the aspects of the of the title characters or the aspects of the character's own personality in a way not that they're not also gods of their own right right Mm, i didn't Um, even think of that i mean i was trying to tie the interludes to whatever was going on in the human story but i didn't really think of them as aspects of his personality so i like that that's that's nice yeah i think i had just recently started reading boethius Uh when i rewrote this and I knew I had to do something drastic when I rewrote this story. And I, I revise on a large scale. I shred the mm-hmm. thing. And sometimes I'll scrap 80% of, of a story and, and come back to it. But so I decided there needed to be something more. And so it was these interludes in which the gods and goddesses are talking and reflecting on what's going on below. And they're actually plotting and planning something. Or Aphrodite is plotting something. And the others are trying to figure out what she's planning. But at the end of the story, I'm not even sure whether she succeeded. <laughs> mm-hmm. So that's something I'd love to yeah. hear when they encounter it. I'm not even 100% sure whether what happens at the end is what Aphrodite planned or if she herself is surprised. Yeah, I didn't even think of that. But yeah, that's that's true. But uh, so listeners, <laughs> if you want to read this story and have some input, please do. Yeah. Uh, you know, please do. And then at the same time, I bought a book by Margaret Atwood. That is a retelling of the exact same myth. Oh, and it was wow. fabulous because it came in the mail and I didn't expect it to be. It's one short story packaged on its own as a hardcover book. It's gorgeous. So oh, it's the cool. size and shape of like a little golden book or something for kids. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It's her story. And it is not for children. <laughs> yeah. And she takes a wildly different approach to the myth, except her story starts where mine leaves off. Actually, uh-huh. her story starts with sort of a time gap. So you could read mine and then hers and there they'd be in a really interesting dialogue yeah and then hers is from a different character's point of view and then she also has a wild twist at the end that's not in the original myth as i have a twist in mine yeah and i i'd say the twist in yours just like when i got to it i didn't expect it but it made sense which yeah which which was great and as i said there's Uh, so many other authors doing this right now there's madeline miller's circe there's lavinia by sorry by Ursula Le Guin yeah Yeah. and there are many others in this vein mostly women writers who are taking Mm -hmm. these myths and giving voice to the women who Mm -hmm. were overlooked I don't do that um in my story I do take a male point of view character um but I still do yeah inhabit his mind a little bit yeah I'd say you do it wonderfully and it's it's yeah fascinating just just a really uh, a really interesting but um, a little creepy yeah. too oh yeah for sure he's for sure lawyer, and he's got all yep. these weird you know sexual hang-ups and i mean yep. he's a he's a creepy dude so it was yep. Yep. a little uncomfortable but it was necessary to go through that journey to get where i wanted to get with the myth yeah yeah 
Yeah, and honestly, like reading the original myth, I, I mean, I'm always creeped out by the original. <laughs> Good. <laughs> but uh, yeah, uh, or or at least as told in a certain, yeah, yeah. As, as as told in Ovid. I guess that's right. Right. Casting the net pretty wide. But so if you think I that's creepy, wait till you read Madeline Miller's because she ups the creep factor. Oh man, <laughs> very great deal. Yeah. So when you were when you were thinking of these stories and writing these stories, are there any that just kind of like came right out, sprang out of your head, fully formed and armored, so to speak? Are, are, are there any which which do you think required a lot more chiseling from you before before the finished form was was visible? Oh, nice. Beautiful metaphors in that question. The one that sprang out of my head fully formed, and I have no idea where it came from, and it doesn't sound like me to me, is Cemetery in the Clouds, which is the only funny story in the collection. Mm. So I kind of want to start the collection with that one. But anyway, well, there's still months ahead to talk about the order of the final collection. But it's a futuristic science fiction, and it's a cop and robber story in the future, but the robber is a grave robber in the 27th century. And they're both just super jaded and they hate their jobs and everything is tough in the 27th century. And there's <laughs> scale human sterility and there's bioengineering, cloning, designer babies. And then it turns out most of the human race is in cryo sleep and there's cryo enslavement going on for stem cell harvesting and clone <laughs> cultivation. And the two characters have separate narratives that then weave together. But the story for me, from a technical point of view, was mostly an experiment in writing amusing, snappy dialogue, which I've hardly ever done. So again, readers can decide whether that's successful. Yeah, yeah. So it was just like, boom. And like C.S. Lewis with, with Narnia, and I, Kay referred to this in her interview as well, it started with an image. It started with an image that I am so happy my cover artist, Eric Muller, has painted a gorgeous cover for this. And oh, cool. Image perfectly. And I don't think this is too much of a spoiler because it's going to be right on the cover. It's the image of coffins rising through the air into a hovercraft. <laughs> and oh, that's cool. It's just, I mean, it's basically like he got into my brain and saw the image and, and painted uh, it. And that works so well with the title too. I, yeah. I love that. Yeah. The cover is yeah. actually a collage of, of four or five of the stories. Okay. That's okay. That's and he has awesome. a beautiful illustration for Aphrodite. And then the other one that is that sprang fully formed is the Swine Before Pearls. Mm -hmm. It's basically just a meditation on bad religious art. Hmm. And I want to rewrite it so that it's not so vindictive <laughs> because I wrote it in a time of, of anger against bad religious art. And how can you offer these squalid things to the divine majesty? But I don't think that coming from a place of judgment or vindictiveness is a healthy place for a writer to be, mm -hmm. but the central, Although it can be a really productive place. Uh, I mean, it can be great for therapy for yourself. <laughs> but the central image is this this bird, this albatross, who's just soaring over a, a human city and and viewing the art. So the entire story is almost just like an image. Hmm. It's not as narrative driven as the others. So yeah. that one sort of sprang. All the rest needed so much chiseling. That dramatic revision I talked about, just scrapping and almost starting with genetic revelation was by far the most difficult to revise because it's the most spiritually autobiographical. The facts of the story are not generally 
autobiographical, but the feelings. Yeah. And as I was telling you before we started recording, rewriting that was very bad for my mental health. It it plunged me into a very deep, dark depression back to sort mm. of the stage I was in when I experienced the events that inspired the story. And it, it needed so much rewriting to get out of that space enough that anyone else could read the story because it was so privatized. Yeah. Yeah. hopefully it's a bit um, more readable which of the two would you say are are the most different which would you say sort of sort of contrast the most i think cemetery in the clouds and aphrodite has fallen from the sky they're very different in the time periods they depict ancient greece and this futuristic they're wildly different genres this spiritual meditative myth and then this noir detective but set in this it's i mean it's almost a little bit like the firefly sort of thing you know you take two genres and you sort of smash them together and see what happens yeah. and aphrodite is atmospheric and sorrowful and hopefully a bit revelatory and cemetery is is funny it's almost slapstick in a couple a couple moments it's just a lot of banter back and forth very cool And I almost forgot to ask you about incoherence, which is, of course, the the nod to Charles Williams' coherence in your collection. What's what's incoherence about? Incoherence is the story of a person who rejects grace and falls to pieces. So, in a way, it's similar to the narrative of Wentworth in Williams's novel *Descent into Hell*. The original version of this story, you know, a decade ago was much more explicit, like the main character is sitting in a class in a Christian college and is reading about Charles Williams and is sort of reading a lecture on what is coherence. I toned that way down in this version, because the word incoherence is common enough that if no one has ever encountered the word coherence before, I think it's pretty easy to figure out. Instead, I put it into like a yoga meditation session about unity and being one with the universe and so forth. So it's a, it's a story that was hard to to rewrite because I came to like the character and the character comes so close to accepting grace. The, the first part of the story is sort of a narrative of someone waking up to the possibility of connection and community and then going a different direction. And I don't want to say too much more or even the gender so that some of it can yeah. be... Surprise. No, that's fair. That's fair. I keep coming back to this, and maybe maybe for you it's not as much of an issue, but the difference between scholarly work, right? You're 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 well known mainly as a scholar on the inklings, particularly Charles Williams. You wrote your dissertation on magic and modernist theater. Mm-hmm. What is is fiction for you? challenging in a way that scholarly work is not or, or are they all just pretty much you know it's it's as hard to write one as it is to write the other or easy easy to write one as it is to write the other i think they're similar because they are all made things that are crafted out of words i was a poet first out of all of those hmm. i'm the worst at poetry but it was an excellent training ground it, it, writing poetry trains the ear to hear how the words sound in sequence. It trains the mental eye, the internal eye, to look at the architecture of the sentence to see whether it is sound and aesthetically pleasing. So I I do strive for pleasant prose, 
in any genre, even in poetry, mind you, because a poem can fall down if it ignores those things that make good prose. It can transcend those things that make good prose, but it cannot dip below them and still be good poetry. So I think the sentence is kind of the, the core for me. And then the other similarity, I tried to dramatize in Aphrodite Has Fallen From the Sky because our main character is a, a creative person. And all of his life, he's had these, these dreams, these real dreams at night, in which he sees something that he wants to capture in his creative work. But during the day, he always feels like there's a fog in his mind. And I write it as him walking down this white hallway with colonnade, you know, colonnade with pillars on either side. And there's a fog or a mist at the end. And if he could just get through that, he would be able to create this great work of art. And I feel that sensation. There's this physical pressure behind my eyebrows, like this heaviness in my skull. And I feel like if I could just clear that away, mm. then I could get to the really clear sentences, the persuasive research, the sharp narrative structure, and so forth in any type of writing. And therefore, no matter what I'm writing, there must come a period of uninterrupted focus and of something that the brain is doing that I can only compare to a very strenuous physical task, like lifting a very great weight or moving a very great obstacle. The brain has to do that and it is utterly exhausting. And I watch myself and others give up before that point and create mediocrities. Yeah. Yep. Yep. We, we have to do that mental heavy lifting or that mental pressing through in order to succeed at any craft or skill or field of learning. So I do think that's the same across yeah. all of them. Yeah. What you're saying sounds a lot like what, what some people have called deep work, right? Good. Um, yes, um, that's right. Like having, having that uninterrupted, when you write, do you more schedule out time, like a certain like block of time and just make sure you're writing during that time? Or is it more just like you get it? If you have like 15 minutes here or 10 minutes there, you grab it and you oh, uh, throw it toward that. Yeah. Oh, I just grab it and multitask and it's awful. But that's why I'm writing no poetry these days mm -hmm. because poetry mm -hmm. requires the deepest of all of those. I believe yeah. it requires absolutely uninterrupted hours. I haven't written any poetry since before my PhD and I'm not sure I've written any poetry since I got a smartphone. Mm. I'm not yeah. sure I've written poetry since I got social media. Yeah, so require enormous discipline to carve out that time and poetry. I have to write by hand, pencil on paper right. as well. Prose, I can I can type. So of the three genres that you've mentioned, poetry, fiction, and scholarship, scholarship is the easiest, which mm -hmm. is weird. The hard part is the research. The yeah. hard part is getting it, but the writing because I'm not as obsessed with the beauty of the sentences. I still want them to yeah. be nice, but that's not the primary goal, right? Yeah. The primary yeah. goal is putting forward the research, the argument, the interpretation, right. Um, Obviously, I can always fix the sentences in revision in any of these, but in fiction, it's it's more important that the thing is made out of the right words and the right. Yeah, Scholar scholarship's easiest for me too. I I could more or less stick to my outline when I did my, when I did yeah. my dissertation, right? When I try to write a book or I try to write a story, I can't stick to the outline until I know what's going on in the character's head, and I, to mm -hmm. do that, I have to write it. And so it's uh, yeah, it's it's uh, this kind of unending circle, you know, unless unless something is just purely an idea-driven story. Right? Do you ever dictate your, your writing in any genre? I 
have occasionally, but mainly it's just when I have an idea and I'm like driving or something. Yeah. <laughs> I have to I have to dictate it. But but well, I but, recently yeah. had an interesting experience that what I was writing was actually scripts for lectures and I'm required by contract to stick exactly to the script. So I was like, it's funny to be writing it first. So I dictated the script because the ultimate delivery is going to be oral. So yeah. why not have it originate in an yeah. oral format? You know, it's it's funny, like when when I have written things and tried to be so detailed and persuasive and cross all my T's and dot all my I's and 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 just really, you know, just really do something that's, you know, a great work of of scholarship, right? I get I get kind of mixed feedback from, you know, from from scholars or whatever. You know, some of them are like, oh yeah, this is really good. This idea is really good. It's it's a little overwrought. It's 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 tough to follow at times or whatever. When I wrote a paper to just kind of be delivered orally and and they were like, oh yeah, we heard this was a good paper. Can you submit it to, you know, this, this journal or whatever? I really just sent the paper cleaned up a little bit and they were like, oh, this is marvelous writing, you know? (laughs) So I was like, oh, I just need to write things. Yeah. Like I'm going to say them to people. I mean, Uh, you're a teacher and a podcaster. You spend an awful lot of time communicating verbally. So it makes sense. Yeah. Uh, That's nice. That's good to know. I I think C.S. Lewis was a lot like that, right? I think he he wrote as he would speak and he wrote as a teacher, Mm -hmm. not as much as a scholar. Whereas Tolkien, I think, was more what I'm saying, was more laboring over the words and sometimes, sometimes was a little overwrought. (laughs) Rarely was not. Any any final things that we didn't get to that you wanted to make sure that 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 we talked about regarding these stories? They're they're so varied that that's, it kind of surprises me that they're not more influenced by the Inklings and then they're not more all of a piece. They come from different corners of my imagination, I guess. That surprised me. So to adapt what we say in New England about the weather, if you don't like one of the stories, hold on, it's sure to get worse. <laughs> but maybe there'll be one that. that different readers will enjoy if you like more science fiction or noir or more myth or more psycho-spiritual. They're they're quite different. Listeners, Serena's being humble. If you like if you like sci-fi that that's philosophical and does not dismiss out of hand the spiritual elements as well as the embodied element of humanity it's it's worth it's worth reading. It's it's super enjoyable. So so thank, thank you. you for sharing these stories with us I'm delighted thank you what author doesn't like to find you know an audience who is enjoying the work and wants to talk about it at such a high level thank you yeah all right well serena higgins thank you and listeners thank you all for joining us as well we'll see you all next time thank you under the mercy under the mercy all this encounter full of joy unscheduled on the decent fan with here an addict of Tolkien, there a Charles Williams fan.